I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your guide to the whitetail woods. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel for the stand, saddle, or blind. First Light. Go farther, stay longer. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. This week on the show, I'm joined by public land mountain buck expert, Nathan Killen to dive deep into what he's learned about the behaviors, trends, and tendencies of the biggest, oldest bucks around. All right, welcome to the Wired Ton Podcast brought to you by First Light and our Camo for Conservation Initiative. If you're not familiar with this, every purchase of First Light's Whitetail Camo, which is the Spectre pattern. If you buy a jacket, if you buy a hat, if you buy a base layer, whatever it is in Spectre, a portion of the proceeds from that sale get donated to the National Deer Association to help them do good things for deer and deer hunters. So that is pretty darn cool. And this week, we've got something pretty darn cool for you on the show as well. We're continuing our I guess I don't have a really good name for this series, but we're diving in this month to the personalities and the tendencies and the behaviors and the the quirks of mature bucks. And not just like, eh, kind of mature bucks. I'm talking like old bucks. What do these bucks do? These deer are different than everything else out there on the landscape. They are the trickiest. They are the wiliest. They are the toughest. They are the survivors. And because of that, I think they fascinate a whole pile of us. We are, I think many, many, many of us cannot stop thinking about these kinds of bucks. We can't stop trying to put together the puzzle pieces, put together that next move in the game of chess to try to catch up with that buck. They are the ultimate quarry. And so this month, we're trying to peel back a couple layers of the onion to understand why these bucks do what they do. 
How do they do what they do? What are they thinking? Where are they going? What are they doing? And the people that are going to help us figure that out are those deer hunters who have had the very most experience with that kind of buck. And today we have a guest who absolutely checks that box. His name is Nathan Killen. He is a diehard deer hunter from the state of Virginia, and he hunts big woods, big mountain public land there in VA, in Ohio, and elsewhere, and he has done it to a level of, to a success level, I'm not sure what I'm trying to say here, he's been more successful than most anyone else I know in that kind of habitat. And he first came up on my radar when our good pal Andy May said to me, man, Nathan gets it done. Like he is a top tier deer hunter doing it in really tough circumstances in a very different place than most people we talk to. We got to get on the podcast at some point. And this was years ago, uh, and it just didn't work out for whatever reason. But finally, we were able to put the pieces together, and Nathan is here today. He has terrific level of experience with these kinds of deer. He's got great insight. He's hunted old, old bucks, like way older bucks than I've ever got to chase. As you'll hear here soon, he's got experience, a lot of experience with not just five-year-old bucks, but six-year-old bucks, seven-year-old bucks, eight, nine, ten. He's finding deer like this, and he's not doing it on like a thousand-acre private you know, super managed farm. He's doing this on public land. He's hunting eight-year-old bucks on public land. There's some things we can learn from a guy like that. So that is our plan today. Now, I just want to, with all that being said, remind us all of one thing though, which is, and I said this last week, I'm going to say this every week because I think it's really important. In this deer hunting world we live in these days, Big deer get a whole lot of attention and praise and excitement. And right, for good reason. They're all those things I just mentioned. They're fascinating. But they're not everything. And if you were to ever let a big buck or old buck or any of this kind of stuff, an obsession over antler size, if any of that ever gets in the way of your respect for these animals, of your fun that you have while hunting these animals, if it gets in the way of, you know, your relationships, your friendships, your family, if any of those things happen, that is a problem, and it's it's super important to me as I've gone through this myself to remind ourselves that big bucks aren't everything, and if you are not at a point in your hunting journey where you are chasing deer like this, that is fine. Do not feel any pressure to do so. If you want to listen today, awesome. You're going to learn some things, but don't feel like you got to go out there and chase a deer like this. If you're still learning, man, be where you are. Enjoy where you are. Get good at where you are. If you have no desire to hunt a deer like this, if you just want to get out there and kill some does or the first deer you see because you want to fill that freezer, man, that is awesome. I'm really glad you're out there doing it. Keep doing it. Keep having fun. Feed your family. Who cares about these big old deer? If that's not your cup of tea, do not feel bad about it. Do not let anybody else's choices make you feel bad about that. Hunt your own hunt. And I think with all that said, in the pursuit of big old bucks, especially these biggest oldest deer, these super mature deer, it's easy to let like that those obsession type tendencies in us deer hunters to kind of take over, right? If anyone's listened over the last couple of years, you've heard my own experience where I've gone maybe too far down this road to the point where I was losing some of the fun. I was so obsessed with the end result, trying to kill one of these deer that I was letting it, you know, a make me feel bad whenever I didn't have that success, make me get, you know, not necessarily depressed, but overstressed for sure. It made me, you know, discount the time that I should have been spending with my family or my friends. It took me away from a lot of the things that make deer hunting as special as it is. 
So I've had to have like a perspective shift in recent years where I've, I've, I think I've found now a healthy balance between appreciating and chasing these big old deer, which are fascinating and fun and a heck of a challenge, but at the same time, not letting it take over the whole thing and making sure that I'm giving proper priority to my family, to my friends and the relationships that I have all around hunting, uh, giving back to the landscapes, making sure that this is like a whole picture thing. It's not just trying to kill the biggest, oldest deer. It's trying to have a fun, challenging hunting experience. It's trying to put food on the table. It's trying to nurture important relationships and share the outdoors with the people you care about. It's about giving back to the deer and the wild places to make sure that these things continue into the future. That is where at least I personally am today. And I hope that if you're somewhere in the midst of this journey yourself, that you'll think about some of those things and, and just be careful, maybe not make some of the same mistakes that I've made when I went too far down this path. Remember, it's about the process, right? It's, it's the hunt. It's not necessarily just the end result. So, so keep that process fun. Don't obsess over, do I fill the tag or not as much as did I do everything I could? Did I do the right things? Did I have fun along the way? At least for me, those are the things that in the end really truly matter. And if you can do that, it's funny how the end result tends to follow. So that is all a long-winded way of saying we are talking about big old bucks today, which are super cool, and we're all going to learn a lot today. I'm going to leave you with two quick plugs before we get to my chat with Nathan. Number one, we do have another episode of One Week in November out on the Meat Eater YouTube channel. Speaking of big old bucks, you're going to get to see me recover a deer I talked about last fall, which is that Nebraska buck. He was a big old buck, buck, not a buck, a buck, huge neck on him, huge body, Really cool deer. Uh, Very exciting ending to this story there. So check out, that is episode two of One Week in November. And and by the time you're listening to this now, uh, there's probably going to be three episodes. So please, if you haven't yet, head on over to the Meat Eater YouTube channel. Check out One Week in November. It follows myself, Tony Peterson, Spencer Newharth, Clay Newcomb, and Giannis Patelis as we're hunting deer during the first week of November all over the country. It's a good time. So check that out. And finally... We're coming up on our fifth Working for Wildlife Tour event, which is down there in Mississippi, and we are going to be planting trees, we are going to be planting food plots, and we are going to be removing invasive plants all on public land down there in Mississippi in the DeSoto National Forest, doing some good stuff for deer, turkeys, all sorts of critters, and I just want to say thank you. I've already heard numbers of how many people have signed up. And it is a big old pile of folks coming down to volunteer their time during hunting season. I'm pretty sure the season's open down there in Mississippi, I'm guessing at least. And uh, I just want to tell you how much I appreciate that, that you're willing to give a little bit of your time on a weekend to give back to these resources, these critters, these places that uh, make all this good stuff possible. So just let you, letting you know that I'm giving you a big virtual high five, handshake. Can't wait to meet you. Can't wait to see you. Tell some stories. Uh, we're going to have a whole lot of fun and we're going to do some good work for wildlife. And I can tell you from experience that, you know, having that kind of, um, putting in that kind of work, it makes the hunts that follow that much sweeter because you know that you were kind of part of, of everything that led up to it. You gave back and now you can take and feel pretty darn good about that deer you bring off the landscape or the fish you pull out of the lake, whatever it is. So now, without any further ado, it's time to get to our next guest in this big old buck series. We've got Nathan Killen. 
And we're going to hear some stories about some 8-year-old, 9-year-old, 10-freaking-year-old bucks, which is kind of crazy. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. All right, here with me now on the line, we've got the one and only Nathan Killen. Nathan, thanks for being here. My pleasure, buddy. Uh, sorry it's taken so long. I know uh, Andy here had reached out to me. Uh, it's been two or three years ago. And uh, during that time, I was actually doing a lot of podcasts and stuff, and I was kind of gotten had gotten burnt out on them. So, and I declined then, but uh, uh, here I am now. <laughs> so, hey, no worries. I'm I'm glad that we're finally making it happen. And uh, you know, better late than never. And sometimes when you right. got to wait for something, it's that much sweeter when it actually happens. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I am. Uh, yep. I'm looking forward to this. The the reason why Nathan, I especially wanted to have you on now at this point, is because we're we're starting a series this month of September. There's a lot of folks that are kicking off their hunting season, maybe right now or quite soon here over the coming weeks, and I wanted to do a deep dive into the critters that fascinate us the very most. I think for most serious deer hunters, it's those biggest, oldest, gnarliest, most mature deer that keep us up at night, right? And from everything I've seen from you, videos and podcasts I've listened to and things I've heard from friends of ours, mutual friends of ours, you've got a almost a sixth sense when it comes to what these old public land mountain bucks want to do. You understand them better than a whole lot of people out there. And so that is why I wanted to bring you on here today to to talk about that, to, to share with us what you've seen to share with us the behaviors you've witnessed, the the quirks and personality traits and tendencies that you've picked up over the years as you've, you know, scouted for these kinds of deer, as you've watched these kinds of deer, and of course you've you've killed a whole bunch of them too. Um, so that's my hope for the game plan today. Does that sound like something that that you're into talking about? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's. <laughs> That's what I eat uh, and uh, dream and sleep about, you know, yes. so just like a lot of you guys. Exactly. Matter of fact, I've spent most of my life uh, obsessing over the darn things. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we, uh, we're on the same page there. So what yep. is it? There's a whole bunch of reasons why I obsess over a deer like that. But what is it for you about those oldest mountain bucks out there that make them just like stick in your craw and make you think about them late at night and every day, every week of the year. Why, why is it that these oldest deer, these biggest, oldest deer uh, stand out for you in your, in your world? I think it's just their nature. Uh, I mean, they're, they're quirky animals. Uh, they're, they're not like the rest of the deer. Uh, they do things totally different. So, and, each and every one of them are different between them. You know, they're not only different from deer, but they're different from each other and just have such different personalities and, and, uh, do things differently. So it's just always a, uh, a riddle or a a puzzle that you're trying to figure out. And, and that's one of the biggest attractions that they are for me, you know, um, you know, there's plenty of just deer out there that we can go out and hunt and stuff, but, you know, it, they're not nearly as uh, difficult to, well, to figure out or uh, get within bow range like the, you know, these big older age class bucks are. So, 
I think that's what the attraction is for me. And plus, once you kill one of them and you walk up on his lifeless body laying there and realize what you've got, I mean, that they look different. You know, they yeah. they're just a different animal. So, but once you do that, you know, it's <laughs> your runt after that. Yeah, man, man, they are um, they're impressive on so many fronts. You know, it's, it's yes. like you said, there's there's the mental side of the back and forth, the the mental chess game you've got to play. And then to your point, like physically, you can't help but just be kind of taken aback when you actually see a, a truly old yes. buck in the flesh. I mean, they're just I mean, uh, I've always I've wanted to make a point, you know, in these conversations and when I talk to folks, especially when you've got newer hunters around to, to not make someone feel like they should feel pressured to try to, you know, target a deer like that, right? Like any deer is an incredible accomplishment. It's yes, a, it's a heck absolutely. of a challenge for a lot of people. But there's certainly nothing wrong with getting excited about those deer when they do get to that point. And and, and <laughs> like you right. said, like once you do go down that road, it's really hard to turn back. Yes. Yeah. From your experience, when do you think on average a buck kind of switches into mature buck gear. You know, like when I've heard a lot of people talk about this and I think I've seen it too, where, you know, when a buck becomes like truly mature, they almost become a different species. It's like a different animal from all the rest of the deer out there. At what age in your neck of the woods, would you say that usually happens when there's like a big shift in behavior and how they act? Um, Is that, you know, what, what age jump do you think that happens at? I think that would be uh, as far as behavioral, uh, four and a half uh, on average, um, and um, body wise, it would be five or six. You know, um, I think our bucks in in our mountains show their age a little bit later in their life than uh, say a midwestern deer does and i think that it has a lot to do with just the food sure you know they just don't have as uh, good a food uh, here in the mountains as they do in the um uh the midwest where you know you got corn and, and beans and everything else so just be like a person you know i think a person that uh um has a lot more food uh, available to them you know they put on weight more and they'd show their age a little bit more and i mountain deer tend to st- stay leaner you know but, uh, you know, but as far as mentality, yeah, I, I would think four and a half, you know, to five, uh, somewhere through there. So that's mostly what I saw, see anyway. What's the, it's, it's, I know it's got to be a lot harder and maybe impossible in the areas that you're hunting in Virginia and Ohio and stuff like that compared to someone in, you know, the Midwest. Um, but have you ever you know, put an estimate on a deer as far as age that got up past that five years old, six years old, like where you'd seen it year after year or, or had pictures of any of these deer. Um, what's the oldest buck you think you've been able to like get some time with hunting and, and, and chasing? Um, I'm probably hunting one of them this year, to be honest with you. Really? I've hunted a lot of bucks, uh, in the seven to nine year old, uh, range. <laughs> um, and I killed one. Uh, it's been 2019. I think he was eight and a half. Uh, he was just an ancient buck. Wow. And man, you, you should, well, you could look back through my Instagram uh, pictures and see pictures of him, but he was just an absolute horse of a deer. And um, 
but yeah, you know, every year I've always got, uh, you know, five, six, seven-year-old deer to hunt. Matter of fact, this year, the biggest buck that I'm hunting, he is actually only four and a half to five and a half, but he's the most impressive deer. And then I got a six and a half-year-old that I'm hunting, and then I got a buck that he's anywhere between eight to ten that I'm hunting. So Wow. So you, you said that the biggest jump, like the biggest change is like somewhere around that like four and a half year old period. Yeah. But is there any, you know, between that four and a half and that nine range that you mentioned there or whatever is or 10, is there any other major change? Like, is there another shift from seven to eight or is there, is there another tier up there at the tippy top for those very, very oldest deer when it comes to like, they start to act differently. Like, do those eight and nine year olds do something different than your four and five year olds on average? Yeah, I would definitely say on average they do. They just become uh, extremely reclusive. It's it's almost like they 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 don't even associate with the rest of the deer herd. Uh, they just have their uh, they they. It's like they live a completely different uh, or separate life from the other deer, and uh, they can those type of deer are very very hard to locate. Uh, they just kind of uh, lurk around in the shadows and. Uh, um, and they're even hard to pick up on trail camera a lot of times because they just uh, move differently and use the areas differently, and, and I think it's on purpose to avoid other deer. So if you've got your trail cameras uh, focused on uh, the majority of the deer sign like most people do, then those bucks will live undetected, you know, and, uh, and it, it takes special, I wouldn't say special tactics, but uh, it, it takes special thinking outside of the box uh, you might say to be able to uh, put yourself in position to get one on, you know on your trail camera or even more yet see one you know so yeah do you have any example that comes to mind of a deer like that i'm just curious if there's a buck that you could use to paint a picture of like what one of those alternative lifestyles of these oldest bucks might look like is anything kind of yeah, uh, yeah, I can think of one right off the bat, uh, and uh, I nobody ever killed this deer. Uh, hmm. um, as far as I know, he lived to probably, and, and who knows, the darn deer might be still alive now uh, <laughs> because he hasn't. He, there's he hasn't been seen. Uh, no trail camera photos of him in two years now, and but two years ago, the deer was probably eight to nine years old. And I've got two sheds off of him. Uh, I've got a couple buddies that have uh, some sheds off of him. Man. And uh, he lived in a, a fairly hard uh, hunted area. Uh, and um, and nobody ever seen that deer, you know. And other than just a few sheds and every now and then somebody getting, him, getting a trail camera picture of him, you know, you would never knew that he even existed there, you know. But the topography and just the habitat there, kind of lends itself for a big buck to you know be able to do that too so what was that you know what was that topography like what kind of place did that buck hole up in uh well i really i really don't want to speak too much about this (laughs) particular deer because there is another one in there right now fair enough but uh uh you know the he just lived in uh higher elevation and um he lived on the north side of a mountain, and it was just, you know, very remote from everywhere else. So,
Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild. But searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. So one of the things, you mentioned that these bucks, when they get a lot older, they become more reclusive. But one thing I've heard a lot in the Midwest is that these really old bucks really not only become reclusive, but they tighten up their core area more and more. You hear about these bucks like living in smaller and smaller and smaller areas. Um, In this big woods, mountainous habitat where I'm imagining some of these bucks travel quite a lot, does that happen with these big old deer by you too? Uh, Yeah, but now that I think that really comes back to personality of bucks too. Some of them are roamers and, and others are homebodies. And I see that a lot too. You know, I've seen older age class bucks that uh, uh, have a lot larger home range than others. And then uh, some 
their home range is really small. Matter of fact, one of the bucks uh, that I'm hunting this year, he has, matter of fact, well, actually two bucks out of the three uh, that I'm hunting this year have really small core areas, and they hardly ever leave out of them. And matter of fact, one of them, uh, his core area is so small that um, if I had to put a size on it, probably less than 200 acres and uh from probably uh early spring up until first of november he hardly ever leaves that wow and uh but now once he does leave it he doesn't come back till springtime but he doesn't go very far um one thing that changes where that spot is is the uh the foliage. Basically, once the leaves are on the tree, he's there, and once they're gone, then he's not, and he just shifts probably about a half a mile, and uh, that's where he spends um, pretty much November, December, January, February, March time frame. Hmm. What would be, and again, I'm, I'm asking for a rough estimate here, but on these mature bucks in the places that you hunt, if if a small core range, like you mentioned there, is like 200 acres, what would be like an average core range for like the mature bucks you typically, you know, are, are chasing around? Is it substantially bigger than that or kind of in that neck of the woods? Yeah. Yeah. I would say, um, I would say, you know, the, what you've read about all your life, you know, a good square mile would probably be pretty average for most uh, mountain bucks. You know, some okay. of them are going to be larger than that. I've, Matter of fact, I think some that uh, I've known have probably had home ranges, you know, up to four or five square miles. And those deer are extremely hard to catch up with. So you would you would prefer the homebody buck that's got the oh, tight yeah. core range? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Just because I actually, uh, you know where it's going to be. That's right. And I prefer to hunt those type of deer. I don't really spend much time on a, a roamer buck. I mean, because, I mean, I don't, I'm a working man. I don't have that much time to uh, invest in them to hunt them, you know. Um, so I've got to put uh, uh, my effort into wherever or whatever buck I feel I've got the um, best chance at killing. So, And obviously yeah. one that has a small core area is going to be the one I'd pick. Yeah. So <clears throat> let's talk about one of those, or not one of those, but let's talk about a home for a super old buck. If you could... If you had like a, a paint brush set and a canvas in front of you and you were going to paint the perfect core area home range for a seven-year-old mountain buck in your area, what would be this setup, the habitat, the topography that you would envision being like that ideal place that you could absolutely imagine a big old stinky buck wanting to live in? Um, I'd love to hear like what that picture perfect thing would be um, I imagine that might help folks understand what to look for when they're looking for that kind of deer. So what in your mind would that be? Uh, just a lot of, uh, change in topography, obviously, um, as far as elevation and structure to it, you know, uh, you can have too busy of topography because if, if the topography is too busy, in other words, you've got too many compounding terrain features and too many ridges, too many saddles, too many benches, then uh, you have too many places for him to live. So, um, you know, just a good elevation change, maybe a thousand feet, you know, that way. Uh, uh, and, and once you get on up into the upper part of that uh, topography, it's going to be, you know, really rough and rugged. 
and uh, then you have some nice secondary ridges that flow down out of that and um and if i could draw up of a, a, the perfect scenario it would have some kind of uh, farmland at the end of or at the lower elevations of that you know because one thing that uh, i like to see in the mountains is um See, we, we depend really on our acorn crop. And if there's no acorn crop, then the deer can be really hard to find. So if you can find areas that uh, back up against um, some kind of uh, farmland or something, no, we really don't have agriculture here. We have a lot of cattle, you know, a lot of open fields, stuff like that. But, you know, if there's no uh, acorns, then the deer's going to uh, make their way onto, you know, grassy type areas. So if you can if you can have a blend of both of those, that would be perfect, you know, uh, a nice farm down low and you got a nice big high mountain ridge back in behind you you know with some finger ridges that lead down into those type of places and and uh you know around here uh the thick areas is mostly mountain laurel and rhododendron so uh a good mix of that with some hemlock and and stuff you know and a couple of really big drainages you know that he would use okay and do you need to have I, mean, I know you mentioned that some New Year's you don't have the acorns. Um, are they ever going to post up in places where there's not oaks? Or are, are there oaks kind of everywhere in your area and they're, they're dependent on them? Or are there going to be some areas that just don't have them at all and then they're deer deserts? No, the, uh, there's oaks actu- actually everywhere. There's not a hillside around here that does not have oaks. And predominantly red oaks, chestnut, and black oaks. Uh, we do have uh, several uh, white oaks, obviously, but uh, they're they're mostly in the lower elevations, and uh, that's generally the ones if they're going to uh, bear some acorns. There, you know, that's the ones that's going to be like the the big feeder oaks that you see out in uh, uh, the edge of pastures and fields and stuff like that. So, okay. but uh, yeah, there's uh, you know we've. We've been pretty fortunate the past probably five years. Uh, we've had a pretty good acorn crop. You know, it it may have not been an abundance, but they've there have been acorns around. So it's not been too hard on the deer, and uh, it hasn't been too you know hard to locate them. But now, back you know previous years before that, uh, I can remember several years in a row that uh, there was no acorns, and when and that's. That's not a good situation for the deer, and uh, I, I don't, you know, some people like that because then it forces all the deer to the grassy areas, and if you've got private land, then that can work out pretty good for you, but, uh, you know, most of us, we've, we're hunting public just like everybody else, so, um, yeah, uh, so, you know, that's what I'm saying about the uh, finding public land that backs up against uh, some kind of uh, farmland, so you, yeah. you've if your deer have no acorns, you can at least know where they're going to and, and hunt accordingly. Yeah. So let's go back to this uh, imaginary big old buck home. Um, you, you painted a good picture there of what that home might look like. Um, but let's talk a little bit about like where his bedroom is in that home. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I am at least imagine there's a lot of scenarios where there's a deer herd spread out over an area like this, right? There's some does and fawns, there's your doe family groups, there's some younger bucks. Let's say there's a, I don't know what the actual age structure looks like in the area you're hunting, but let's say there's a satellite buck or two that's in that three or four year range. But then you've got that one, you know, old salty guy who's, who's eight. What, what does that eight-year-old's bed, hypothetically, or, you know, typical spots he would bed, how would that look different than where that three- or four-year-old buck might end up getting 
in this scenario you painted earlier? Could you give me some hype? You know, obviously this is all hypothetical, but if you could paint what that top, top tier bed would look like for the biggest, oldest versus the next tier down. He's going to be up in the upper one third, you know, on average. Now that's not always the case because uh, there again, some areas, and, and I personally like to choose areas that have more than one older age class buck. And obviously, that gives you more of a chance to encounter one. And and whenever that's the case, then those bucks are forced to choose different areas. So, you know, I I would think the the buck that's uh, the most aggressive or the um, the most dominant in the area is probably going to choose the more premium type area. You know, that he likes the best and kind of force everybody else to choose other areas. But you know, it's just like one of the areas that I'm hunting right now. Uh, it, it actually has uh, some upper elevation, but surprisingly, both the big deer that I'm hunting there are using the lower elevation, and that's a little bit different than what you see, you yeah. know, but you got to hunt them where they're at. And um, and that just goes back to personality, you know, some bucks, uh, you know, they're just all different. But on average, I would say that most mature bucks is going to be bedding in the upper one third, you know, and you, and you hear that a lot and it's, it is true, you know, and, um, and I also found that, uh, generally whenever I find a big deer, he is on the North East or any combination of the two, uh, slopes, um, and I think that it's because, uh, most of your family doe groups are on the South faces. And they like their uh, sec- uh, their uh, seclusion, and they choose, you know, those type of areas that uh, has less deer in them. Plus, it's cooler, you know, most of the year, and um, and you know, it's it, that's just where I find them. So I think they're more comfortable there. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, what about you know the wind direction? How is that impacting that bed decision for a buck like that? Um, he prefers the north side because of what you just described. Yeah. Can wind influence that at all, or is he going to stick to that? Because well, n- yeah, um, but most of our ridges here or main mountains uh, run east to west. So you have secondary ridges that run off the uh, south side, and you have secondary ridges that run off the um, north side. So uh, there's always bedding opportunity, uh, you know, but most of our winds is coming out of the west. So if if I've got a secondary ridge running off the north uh, uh, face and it goes down there and, and a lot of them will have um, a saddle in it and then it'll kind of knob up, you know, create a, a yeah. knoll and then it'll drop straight off. Well, if you've got uh, westerly winds blowing across that, if you'll, if you'll notice and, and you get in there scouting during the wintertime, you'll see their beds off on that eastern side of those secondary ridges. And, you know, a lot of times uh, they'll move over on the uh, western side of it too. You know, maybe if it's really cold and, and late in the evening, you know, you've got a, a uh, the western sun shining on that western edge or what have you, they'll move because of it. But uh, generally you'll find them on the east side of those uh, uh, secondary ridges coming off the north side. So Okay. Yep. That makes sense. Now we, we talk a lot about how mature bucks bed and mm-hmm. unique things that they want. Something you don't hear as much about though, is if and how mature bucks feed in unique ways compared to younger deer. Have you noticed anything like that? Oh, Have you yeah. noticed some trends on that front at all? 
yes, shed hunting will really open your eyes up to stuff like that. And the reason that I say that is because, uh, you know, years that we have a lot of acorns, I'll use that as an example. You know, you'll, uh, during the winter time, uh, which is the, my favorite time to get out and scout, you'll be uh, scouting, uh, shed hunting, and, and you're, most people are going to come across these areas that are really tilled up. I mean, it looks like they've been a, I don't know, eight or ten deer, and they've just tilled up an area, you know, uh, sometimes a few acres in size because they're feeding on the red oaks, you know. But you never find big sheds in those type of areas. Hmm. And uh, so what I've started doing is that, uh, I will still look in those type of areas, but I will I will focus more on areas like little hidden hollows and stuff where you can tell that just one or two deer have been feeding, very little uh, feeding sign. And generally, that's where you're going to find uh, uh, the bigger sheds and stuff. So that tells me that those those big bucks, again, are separating themselves from the other deer, you know, uh, especially outside the rut. Now, during the rut, obviously, you know, these big bucks, are, they're going to be uh, uh, frequenting, you know, areas with higher doe populations. But aside from that, uh, that's not the case. You know, they they feed separate, they bed separate. And, and, you know, if you can imagine, you know, a buck bedded at his bachelor pad, it's just him, you know. He gets up right at dark, he feeds a little bit, and uh, there again, he's still by himself. And, you know, uh, of course, once it starts getting closer to the rut, then he's going to start making those big loops and stuff, checking out the girls and, and stuff like that. And they're going to be laying down sign, and that's where people's going to start seeing their sign at. So that's where they're going to start hunting at. That's where they're going to start putting up the trail cameras at. And they're going to be getting nighttime pictures of them. But in reality, those bucks are not there. You know, they're they're off in a totally different direction, you know. So, you know, they're bedding separate and they're feeding separate uh, outside the rut. Yeah. That, and that's what makes them so hard to locate. So, so continuing that line of thought then, what about how they're traveling between those two places uniquely? So, again, I've heard, you know, everything from, you know, the faint trail versus the large trail to just above the bench to just below the bench to the way they might mm-hmm. use the just beneath the ridge versus the tops of ridges. Like, what are some of the trends you've seen with how these deer are actually traveling across the landscape? Because it's it's pretty easy these days to to read topography and get a sense of how most deer want to travel across the landscape, right? Using some yeah. of those terrain features in predictable ways. But is there anything unique about those six, seven, eight-year-old bucks where they go against the grain or against what we would expect? Oh, yeah, yeah that, that's another thing that makes them so hard to set up on. And, and most hunters don't kill them is because most of these older age class bucks, when they do move through uh, topography type spots that we choose to set up in, they generally don't travel through them like 90% of other deer. They they will skirt around it. And um, and a lot of times, you know, that it'll be on the downwind side or maybe it'll be on the side that has the most cover, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but there'll they'll be clues left in those type of places to let you know uh, that they're doing that. You just got to gotta have the mindset to look for it. You know, they're still going to leave uh, uh, those big scrapes and you'll still see big rubs and stuff like that in the traditional spots that deer are moving through. And the reason they're doing that is they're leaving their calling card, you know, letting, letting everybody know, Hey, I'm here. But most of that sign is done uh, under the cover of darkness. But 
outside of darkness, those bucks are kind of skulking around or uh, skirting around all that stuff, you know. And uh, and I've seen it so many times, especially uh, hunting benches. You know, everybody loves good benches and stuff. And I used to be really bad for sitting up on the bench because that had the heaviest sign on it. It had the biggest rubs, had the big scrapes. It had the heavy deer trails. I mean, that, you know, we've always been taught that's what to look for, you know. But you sit up in those places and you never see the truly uh, mature bucks move through those places unless he's in the company of a doe. Uh, but, uh, I started, uh, you know, when you're out there scouting and stuff and you're looking, you know, you're not only looking at the bench, you're looking below the bench and, and you'll find yourself above the bench. And, and generally you'll find those lightly used trails with a few, uh, decent rubs along those. So what I started doing is kind of splitting the difference, which is another mistake, but sometimes it works <laughs> out. It depends on how close the sign is. But, you know, you set up to where you can shoot the bench and you can shoot below the bench. Yeah. Well, um, like I said, sometimes that works out for you. But most of the time, the buck will be too far below the bench. And uh, you in, in the best thing for you have done is just went ahead and committed to hunting below the bench or above the bench, whichever one uh, is the right spot. But, um, uh, but yeah, you should always commit to uh, – um, in, in, in other words, commit to one travel uh, corridor instead of trying to cover both unless they're within bow range, you know. Yeah. So do, yeah, do I you, hope that makes sense to everybody out there. Yeah, it, it does, I think, to me at least. Yeah. Um, do you yeah. look at every big you know, terrain feature in that kind of way? So if, if we're thinking of a bench or, or a saddle, do you always assume, okay, they're going to be off it a little ways and then play off of that? Or are there some situations where you're like, nope, in this one, I'm going to hunt to shoot right at the saddle. But on this one, I want to be 60 oh, yeah. yards off. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to be, I was just going to ask, you know, can you give me a little bit more um, insight into how you make that decision? Like what the specifics would be to, to get you on it versus off it? Because I know we got to choose one or the other, but how do we make that decision the best? Uh, you know, a lot of it's just going to be experience. Um, and uh, a lot of it also how everything ties into that. You know, what once you see these bucks uh, move through these type of areas, uh, you know, you're going to be able to start picking that stuff out, but you're going to have to be able to put yourself in that position and actually see it with your own eyes. And once you do that, uh, then you're going to gain the confidence to, to one, put yourself down there, and two, you're going to be able to see it. And uh, and because once you see something happen, it kind of helps um, uh, predict it the next time you know we're we're hunting their tendencies is what we're doing so the more times you tend to see him do something other the more uh it's going to help you to make that decision to hunt off of that um uh saddle or bench or whatever but then there are times whenever you want to hunt the heavy sign and i feel like that that is right around that peak rut time whenever bucks are really you know giving up their guard and and um and putting herself you know out in the open more you know and that and but now I, I warn you a lot of older age mature bucks never do that anyway uh they 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 don't uh put themselves in those situations so 
but you know, the, the best way that I can answer that is just experience, um, you know, hunting a lot. And, um, whenever you do come up on a nice saddle or something other that has the, uh, all the good sign that you like to see, don't set up on it, uh, set up off to the side, make yourself do that, you know, just go down there and look, you know, and, uh, nine times out of 10, you're going to see some kind of sign that he's leaving behind that he has moved through there, you know, and those type of spots require more patience too. I'll be real honest with you because you're not going to see, uh, as many deer as you're going to see up on that, uh, bench or coming through that saddle, you know, so you're, a lot of times you'll question, you know, are you doing the right thing? But, um, if the sign is showing that he's coming through there, you need to put your time in there and, and just trust your gut, and uh, and eventually it will happen. And once you see it happen, then you'll you'll gain the confidence to start doing it more often. Yeah. So, with that in mind, one of the things that I that I wonder a lot about hunting in a situation like you're in, um, you know, that putting time in to a specific location and the balancing act there, you know. Here in the Midwest, super high deer densities. You know, if I hunt a spot once or twice, there's 20, 30, 40 deer that, you know, might pass through there and smell me if I'm not careful about what I did. Um, in your neck of the woods, I'm assuming that, you know, it might be days before the buck you're after passes through an area. Um, maybe, maybe not. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But how do you think about that kind of volume of hunt decision for a specific location like that when you're chasing one of these really old deer? Um, I'm assuming those really old deer, you know, don't put up with a whole lot of human pressure. So I would imagine that's something that you're worried about. But at the same time, to your point, you need to be willing to put in some time in a place for them to finally come through. How do you think about that? Or what does that look like for you when when weighing those two sides of the decision? You know, to be honest with you, I try to avoid uh, uh, pressured areas. Um, I think that is one advantage that I have here in the mountains of uh, Virginia. You know, uh, I, we don't have the hunting pressure like uh, some of the Midwestern states, you know. But um, obviously, I'm not going to hunt where everybody else is going to hunt. Um, and that's one reason that those, uh, a lot of those older age class bucks avoid those type of areas that uh, uh, most, you know, everybody's seeing the sign in. They're setting up there, so they're encountering uh, um, human scent, uh, they may even see people in those type of places. So that's another reason that they're going to avoid those type of spots. So, um, but, uh, w- one thing that, that probably goes against the grain of, uh, a lot of conventional thinking, uh, or things that you've heard is that, uh, hunting pressure makes bucks go nocturnal. And that, that's actually, not the case they're either nocturnal or they're not and uh, and the reason i say that is because a lot of the uh, older age class bucks that i hunt they're nocturnal and they've they've hardly been hunted they hardly ever see a person and uh, and they're still nocturnal so that that's not what's making them nocturnal it's just their personality but hunting pressure what it does is it moves the deer around and uh makes them avoid areas so um you know that's that's the type of spots that you want to start seeking out the type of places that they're uh, um, traveling through to avoid other people you know now a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition 
of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were onto something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild, but searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today because trust me there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth so that that brings the question or brings to mind the question of what does happen for you when you find one of those nocturnal bucks and he's nocturnal not because of pressure but because he's just that way um do you just move on to a different deer or okay so how do you hunt a buck like that? An old deer who just is naturally nocturnal in my world, I would think, well, I'm just not close enough to his core area. Then if I'm just getting nighttime pictures, I'm not close enough. Is that the case where you are too, or something? Oh yes. Yes. No, that that's exactly what it is. Uh, these older age class bucks that, you know, if I could paint a picture of uh, how their daily movement would be, they do move uh, throughout the day, but it is very, very short distances. Um, and to really and truly, if, if you're not within, especially, you know, coming up through October, September, October, first of November, if you're not within 
200 yards of where that deer is bedded, and in and and most cases, I'm going to say less than that, uh, you have almost no chance of seeing that deer. So you have to, uh, and that that's the important part of uh, winter scouting. You can mm-hmm. learn so much about individual bucks, and that's something else too. Once you start hunting individual bucks, you you, you will accelerate your learning of um, uh, old age class deer exponentially once you start doing that because you start th- you you're forced to think differently, and uh, scouting during the winter time. Um, and, uh, you know, once you find a specific buck that you want to hunt and you go in there during the wintertime shed hunting, trying to find, uh, his sheds, uh, uh, really picking apart his, uh, core area or trying to find his core area, you know, uh, that that's, that's the most important part. And, and you just start piecing everything together. You know, you're trying to find every bit of evidence that you can that that particular deer is leaving behind. And you're able to paint a picture of where, you know, most likely he's, you know, spending his day, daytime hours. And then once you figure that out, then you start uh, uh, picking out the places that you think that you can have encounters with him, you know. So it's really not that difficult. Um, I, I know that it sounds difficult and and the, having the encounter is is difficult, but figuring out where you need to be is not that difficult. Yeah, and uh, and it just takes a lot of uh, scouting, and uh, and the best time to do that is during the winter time. How do you, do you have any system for keeping track of all of these data points, or is it all in your head? Like when I when I say data points, I mean like all the things you're scouting and, and noticing, all of the things that you're picking up when you're out there hunting and observe something, all of the trail camera photos that you get of these specific bucks. Do you track it in any way? Do you journal? Do you have spreadsheets? Do you have any kind of way to organize this, or do you just keep it keep it top of mind? No, I just keep it top of mind. I mean, I think about the darn things year round. Now I do use my uh, mapping apps. I I use Spartan Forge myself, and uh, uh, you know I will uh, mark key features or uh, key points. You know that I think that I need to remember, and um, uh, something that I feel like is important. And you know that those type of things you know weigh heavily on where I feel like that uh, I need to set up on him or um, where I think that he's you know at. So. But as far as journaling, no, I don't journal. You know, I'm okay. I'm sure a lot of guys do that and and have you know find good use out of it. But it's just something that I've never done. Sure, uh, tendencies. We we talked about a number of different ways we can try to pick up on a buck's tendencies, and and one of the things you mentioned for a lot of these old deer is that they just do not move a whole lot away from their bed in daylight. Um, but there are a lot of outside factors that deer hunters like to debate about how they might impact a deer's decision to get up and move on his feet. Stuff like temperature, wind, moon, precipitation, barometric pressure. Have you seen anything like that uniquely influence old bucks getting up and moving during daylight? Uh, What's it look like in your neck of the woods when it comes to that? Is there something that really does make a difference or is it all kind of, you know, a bunch of hype? Uh, you know, I, I personally like, um, cold bluebird skies, uh, and you know, um, that's whenever I see most of my movement. Um, I've never been a, a a very big fan of, uh, 
rainy days. You know, I, I have just not seen uh, that many deer on those type of days. Um, now, I do like hunting after, you know, a good front moves through. And, and you know, of course, now one of the bucks that I'm hunting this year, and, and this is one of the only deer that I've actually seen this uh, with, but it seemed like he likes to move on uh, days with some pre- precipitation. Um, I do get him moving a lot, but he's one of the only deer that I've ever uh, noticed doing that. You know, I just, I don't think that our deer here in the mountains, um, you know, I I see, you know, YouTube videos and stuff of uh, guys in the Midwest hunting beans and corn and the snow, you know, they're hunting uh, times with a lot of snow. You know, it's just pouring the snow and the deer just piling into those type of places. You don't see that here in the mountains, and and I think one reason is is just because we don't have the right type of food to make them uh, move on those type of days. You know, uh, I think that our deer are just better off to hole up and wait it out and not expend any energy, uh, and uh, once everything clears up, then, you know, move after the front has done a move through and things kind of start uh, warming up, so. Okay. That makes sense. I get that. So what about time of year? You know, a lot of folks don't like the rut for hunting the really old deer, especially when they're trying to hunt one specific buck because it's hard to make predictions about what they're going to do. Um, but in your, you know, in the scenario we've been talking through, that also might be one of the only things that gets one of these deer moving a little bit earlier. When do you think the very best time to kill a deer of this age is in the mountains that you're talking about hunting. Um, what's that? If you could pick like a week, what's that very best week? A week. I'm going to say first week of December. Hmm. Um, I love October and I think that's a great time, um, to kill a a specific deer. But, uh, you know, I'm like a lot of others, you know, if I'm hunting a a very specific deer, November is not my favorite time to do that. Uh, if I'm just trying to kill a good deer, then of course, November is, is my favorite time. Yeah. But, uh, uh, yeah, I see a lot of the older age class bucks, uh, on their feet the first week of December trail cameras prove it. Um, just hearing people talk about, you know, that they've seen some giant, you know, uh, somewhere, uh, that they had never seen before. And it's always during that time period, you know. Uh, but that that first week of December is is excellent, and even up through uh, up to Christmas, you know, um, you'll catch them out moving around quite a bit during that time. What do you think that is? Is that just you know just trying to get the feet on and, and pack on some energy before the end of or before the real heart of winter picks up, or is it that like post rut trying to catch that very last you know doe that cycled in or, or something like that? Yes. Yeah, I don't think our uh, winters are tough enough to uh, for them to be on any kind of a feeding uh, frenzy during that time period. It's, I'm, I feel sure that it's uh, rut-related because you, you catch them on scrapes during that time. It's like scrapes reopen up, you know. Matter of fact, the, one of the bucks that I'm hunting this year, he, I caught him uh, on a very specific scrape numerous times through December and even up into January, almost to February. Hmm. So, so the rut brings up a, uh, I mentioned, or I thought about asking this earlier, but what about how these really old deer partake in the rut? You know, like 
have you seen on average that these oldest deer get going sooner or later? Uh, have you found some one phase of the rut or another is when they are more active than the other deer? Um, what's that look like for you? Does that uh, stand yeah, out? Yeah, seems like uh, the middle of November. You know, seem like younger uh, age class bucks, you know, two, three, four-year-olds, uh, they definitely get uh, uh, started earlier um, in the rut. And, and it's just like teenage boys, you know, they just, they're excited. They're not, uh, yeah. uh, they're not educated, you know, they're, and these older age class bucks, they've done a been through all that. So they, you know, that they really don't start showing up and, uh, making their presence known until, you know, generally middle of November, you know, whenever things, whenever, basically when the does are ready, you know, and I, I really believe that a lot of these older age class bucks, um, are you know that they they kind of have their um what's the word i'm looking for reputation uh you might say in an area and you know the does know that he's there and i believe a lot of the does seek them out and uh, that's another thing that makes them older age class bucks so hard to kill and uh, even see is because they're not having to do anything to get with those a lot of times the does i feel like go looking for them mm-hmm. yeah so, all of that said, then I, I feel like what I what I've been trying to do here is kind of paint a picture of like what these old bucks' world looks like, how they mm-hmm. operate, what their tendencies are, what some of their behavioral quirks are, and um, and you have so much experience with these types of deer, this age of deer that you've got a great, you've been able to provide a lot of interesting insight into that. But the the next question that this kind of leads to then is, okay. So they do this and this and this, and they don't do that, that, and that. Well, how the hell do you kill one of them, um, <laughs> given all of that? Yeah. And so, so my next question is just like patterning one of these deer, like trying to figure out how to actually set up on a specific old buck like you're describing. Um, and you mentioned you're after like one or two really old deer like this this year. And I don't know if, if you could use one of these deer as an example, or if you just want to use an old deer from the past as an example. Um, but I would love to hear specifically, you know, what the steps are for you to put together, you know, an actionable plan for a buck like this. You mentioned, you know, doing the winter scouting. Um, I know you use trail cameras. Um, I know you're studying these maps and you're thinking through some of these different, you know, personality traits of these deer. But I'd love to kind of hear some specifics about what that looks like and what is enough information for you to then say, okay, this is the time, this is the place I'm going to make my move. Um, could you walk me through either a specific example or a hypothetical like that? Yeah, uh, I'll talk about a few different things here. Uh, this is going to be kind of a smorgasbord of things. One thing that I do uh, that helps me is I run my trail cameras on video mode all the time. You wouldn't believe what you will learn about a buck um, just by running your trail cameras on video mode. And I'll, I'll give you an example. One of the bucks that I'm hunting this year the one that I was thinking that uh, I had on the scrape, uh, you know, um, through December and, and uh, January. Well, uh, in one of the videos, I actually seen him use the bathroom, you know, leave turds right there in the scrape. Hmm. Well, I went immediately and looked at those droppings, and I, c- and I learned to identify his droppings versus every other deer. Well, that's and, next level. Uh, yeah, and uh, so... Whenever I'm in there shed hunting and scouting, 
I'm able to identify exactly what trails this deer has been on, what trails he has not been on, uh, areas that he has been in and areas that he has not been in. So it's just stuff like that. And even, you know, on the inside of his right main beam, he had a, uh, a sticker that was about probably two inches long. I didn't find his right side, but I, did, I was able to locate his left side. But I just started analyzing the rubs and stuff in the area, and I was able to pick out what was uh, mostly his rubs. Now, you can't, you know, identify everyone, but... You know, some are going to have that marking on it, you know. Yeah. So it's just uh, really looking at everything uh, through a microscope, if you want to call it, and uh, just analyzing all the sign that you're coming up on, you know. And eventually you start to put together a picture of uh, where this deer is using, you know. And and something else about uh, these older age bl- uh, class bucks is a lot of times the, you know, they may be feeding in the same general type areas, but a lot of times they bed in a totally different direction. So, you know, keeping that in mind, you know, you're scouting, you're seeing the most heavy deer sign, and you know the direction that it's going back up into. Well, you you need to check that out, but uh, you also need to check out in other directions too. And you'll uh, you'll soon realize that a lot of these uh, these older bucks they're coming from completely different directions, and so th- that brings up another thing too. A lot of times, um, especially whenever you have agriculture low and uh, bedding up high, and these deer are coming off these secondary ridges down into these uh, agriculture or farm type areas, you know. Throughout most of the season, uh, older age class bucks, their movement is going to be in parallel with the, the other deer. In other words, they're going to be moving top to bottom uh, and, and vice versa, just like the other deer are. But they might be just off the trails. You know, they're not going to necessarily sure. be using the same trails, but they're going to be moving back and forth in the same direction. But the closer it gets to the rut, the more from uh, that's going to change from parallel to perpendicular in a lot of instances. In other words, those bucks, instead of traveling up and down, once they start looking for does, they're going to be cutting across those secondary ridges. And it's just a lot more uh, efficient for them to locate those that are coming into estrus that way. So, um, you know, it, just given the time of season is going to have a, a bearing on where I want to hunt that deer. And um, and my winter scouting, you know, of course, is going to, going to put me in the right locations because I... You know, I, I already know if I kill this deer, I know what trees I'm going to kill him out of, you know. So, um, except for early season. Now, early season is a little bit different because of food. Um, but uh, once the leaves come off and we get into uh, uh, November and then even into December, you know, I know where he's going to be. So, you mentioned uh, cameras on the top there and they mentioned that you run them on video. Um mm-hmm. I've heard you say in the past that you run maybe 75% of your cameras on scrapes and that yes. you run your cameras year round or close to it. Yes. Um, okay. So, so I want to confirm that's true. And then part two of that would be, can you elaborate a little bit more on where you're positioning these cameras? Um, you know, I, I, I think a lot about when I'm setting cameras, not only trying to locate the bucks I'm after, but also not spooking them also not you know, putting them in a place where I'm not going to spook them coming in and out. If I have to do that, I might be thinking about other hunters. Um, but you mentioned like you're hunting where there's not pressure. And so these deer, 
very rarely encounter people and, and maybe they rarely encounter cameras. So I'm curious, mm-hmm. does any of that cause you to do something different with your trail camera strategy or placement or anything like that? Yeah, I, I place my cameras in areas that I, for the most part, do not intend to hunt because all I want to know is uh, what, you know, I just want to verify that he's there and I want to know what he looks like. My scouting is going to tell me where I need to hunt him. You know, I don't need to run trail cameras uh, back in close to his core area or anything like that. And the type of, and, and like I said, I, I run most of my cameras on scrapes. I'm looking for those annual scrapes that, are, that have multiple licking branches, multiple multiple bucks are going to be hitting. And, um, uh, but that, those are the type of uh, scrapes that I put my cameras on. Any anything as far as the height of your cameras, or do you, are you okay just putting them smack dab in front of the deer, no, eight I, feet I, away? No, I try not to do that. I don't want my cameras to be obnoxious. You know, I want them to, because now some some bucks do shy away from them. You know, uh, there again, it goes back to personality. Some of them it doesn't bother them at all, but some it does, and uh, I just don't take that chance. I make sure that my cameras, you know. Um, I probably put my cameras probably around eight feet high and, uh, there again, I put them in locations that I can, you know, sneak in, check them, uh, and, uh, and be able to get back out without messing up, uh, in my chances of killing that deer, you know, because, you know, checking your trail cameras and stuff and you, you know, you're leaving human scent around and, you know, that, that, that's, that's not going to cause him to go nocturnal, but that will make him not want to be there during daylight hours in that particular spot. You know, there's a difference between um, a nocturnal buck and uh, uh, where he moves during the daylight versus during the dark. You know, tr- truly, there, there's no such thing as a nocturnal buck because they they all will move, yeah. but uh, it's just they they won't visit certain areas during the daylight. They, you know, and I find that uh, scrapes or uh, areas that they don't like to visit during the daylight. Not not in not where I hunt anyway. Now, Ohio is completely different there. But now hmm. here in Virginia in the mountains, uh, from my experience, I get very, very few uh, trail camera pictures of bucks uh, in the daylight. Do you have any guess as to why that is different in Ohio versus where you are? Uh, not really. I mean, I, I, I don't know why. Um, I, I've got a guess on, uh, why my bucks here in Virginia don't like to, uh, visit scrapes it, uh, during the daylight. I feel like that if it's a very specific thing that those bucks don't want to be standing there for some reason in the daylight, they'll, they'll be around, you know, cause I've actually seen this. I've seen, I've been hunting a scrape before. And I have seen a buck feeding under a white oak or a red oak, whatever, you know, just an oak out from me, 75 to 100 yards, and be there for, you know, an hour before it gets dark. And, uh, and but he would never venture over to that scrape. But as soon as it get, gets dark, you can hear him walk straight over to it, and he'll work <laughs> it and everything else, and then he walks off, you know. But it's almost like they don't want to go to a very specific thing like a scrape uh, during the daylight. Now, why they want to be that way, I don't know. Strange. And, and is that unique to those mature bucks, or do you see that with like all the bucks in your no, area? No, I like see that. that. Uh, you, you know, it's you know, bucks even as as young as three, but especially once they start getting four years old uh, and older, then yeah, for sure those deer. 
Interesting. You mentioned scent, leaving your scent on the ground when you're walking in and check cameras. Um, you know, these days it's kind of trendy within the world of like DIY deer hunters, especially public land deer hunters to say scent controls for the birds. You just got to play the wind. Um, right. There's a lot of people that kind of like brag about how they don't practice any kind of scent control because they can just, <laughs> they can understand the wind really well. Right. Uh, but, but I noticed that that's not the case for you. You seem no, to I, take it more I, serious. Can you, I'm, can you explain? I'm going to answer that uh, really uh, good. Listen, <laughs> You spend all this time, money, and effort to scout uh, and and find these places. Why in the world would you be so lazy to skip one of the the simplest things? Mm-hmm, yeah, uh, scent control. Uh, you know, it, to, to me, it's just laziness. Uh, and it, but at the same time, it's it's one of the most simple things that you can do to protect where you're hunting. You know, you need to be able to get in and out of that spot undetected. If you can't do that, then you're going to burn that spot out. And here in the mountains, it takes two things that uh, is one of the most important things to be a successful um, big buck killer here in the mountains, if you want to say, is persistence and dedication. And, and a lot of times that means putting a lot of time in very specific spots. And if you can't get in and out of those spots without leaving a bunch of scent uh, and trashing up the area, then uh, why would, you know, you, you're going to be sitting there for hours and days on end and, uh, and just, you know, for, for not. So why would you skip that step? Because trust me, I have been doing this for years and you can play out, play the wind all you want. I play the wind. Uh, but you cannot per- always predict where the deer is going to come from. That is yep. impossible. They don't always come in with the nose to the, or the, their uh, nose to the wind. Uh, and they don't always come in with their um, um, the, the wind blowing from their tail forward. You know, y- you just don't know. So the best practice is to practice scent control to the best uh, you humanly can. You know, uh, I just don't understand these guys that don't take it any more serious than what they do. You know, I've heard that a lot. So Yeah, I'm right there with you. If there's, there's so many variables outside of your control when yes. you're trying to chase these deer, why wouldn't you want to have one of those things you can control you do have 100% control over, why wouldn't you take advantage of that part to put a little bit more in your favor, to have that little insurance policy? Um, Like you said, it it seems like an elaborate excuse just not to do the work. (laughs) Yep, that's right. (laughs) Um, So speaking of impact we make in the woods, there's there's scent, there's your cameras, there's how many times you hunt. We've talked about all those so far. Um, But what about the impact that something like... uh, calling or rattling might make when it comes to these extra mature mountain bucks you know would you ever call or rattle to a seven-year-old or eight-year-old buck in the mountains of virginia or ohio um how do you see them reacting to that kind of thing when we're talking about like a super mature deer compared to like a two-year-old uh in ohio i would i would definitely call to those deer Uh, i've had positive uh now i don't do any rattling but now um I've had, you know, some positive uh, experiences with bucks in Ohio, you know, but 
Now, here in, in Virginia, in the mountains, I don't call to him. The only time that I ever call to a buck here in the mountains is if he, if he is going to, you know, going away from me or, you know, in other words, if I know that I'm not going to get an opportunity at him, I'll blow a grunt call at him a few times in hopes that to turn him and, and get his curiosity up and, and bring him down there. But other than that, I don't do any blind calling. I don't do any rattling. Um, I just prefer to sit silently, you know. Yep. All right, Nathan. I've got two last questions for you before we wrap this up. Um, kind of want to tie a bow on this. If you had to, and I'll, and I'll give you a second to think this through, but if you had to like write the three commandments of Nathan Killen when it comes to understanding and hunting old, old bucks, like your top tier salty dog deer, what would that, like those three commandments be if you had to drill down to the very three most important things you understand about these deer or that you must do to get a crack at these deer? What do you think those three things would be? The things that if they remember nothing else today, they have to remember these three things. What would those be? Number one would be hunt them differently. They're different. You can, you, the chances of you killing more than one mature buck in your lifetime by hunting deer is very, very slim. You have to hunt them as individuals. Um, number two would be do your winter scouting. Um, I don't, you know, I see guys uh, scouting right now. They're scouting their hearts out, and I'm not. You know, I, my scouting was done before the leaves came on the trees. Uh, the only thing that I do this time of year is run my trail cameras, and they're in uh, low-impact areas, and I'm only looking to see what he looks like now and to verify that, yes, he's still alive. So I stay out of the woods, you know. Um, and I'm going to say number three, persistence and dedication uh the the older age class bucks are not pushovers um it takes time um you, and, and a lot of effort you, you just got to keep going and keep going and keep going and hunt smart don't get lazy don't get sloppy you've got to be persistent and you've got to be um um very precise at how you uh hunt these deer so yeah all right. Well, I'm going to get those carved in stone and I'm going to send out <laughs> copies of the tablets across the country for folks to make sure they don't forget this. Yeah. Um, but tell me this, Nathan, I got to believe in your many years of chasing these deer and getting to know these old bucks. Um, I'm sure they've taught you a whole lot. I'm sure that you've probably learned a whole lot from the deer themselves. So I'm curious if you could think back, is there any one specific big old buck that stands out in your memory as having taught you either the most important lesson or the most lessons. Can you think back to any specific example of a deer that taught you something really, really important? And if you can think of a buck like that, could you share with us, you know, the, the story of what that buck, what that buck taught you and how you learned that lesson? Um, it would probably be a buck that I didn't kill. Um, I've got some sheds off of him, and I would get pictures of him up until about October, well, September, and then it's like he just disappeared. And then, but yet, 
once season was over, I was always able to uh, locate his uh, sheds, and they would be there. And uh, but I guess that lesson would be is is most of the time whenever you think that they're gone, they're not. It's just they're doing something different than what you think that they're doing. And that just goes right back to um, if you're not, you know, to, to doing things differently to get on these older age class bucks because they're, again, they're different. Yeah. Yeah, that's, it's such a hard thing to put into action though for a lot of us right yeah because you want to see deer right and, and like the, the sign often tells you like where deer are and your observations often tell you oh well there's deer here and it's really hard to uh, avoid you know what 95 percent of, of all your observations and and everything else tells you should work but you're not looking for a 95 percent deer you're looking for that top five or top two or top one percent buck that's uh like you said different let me tell you one thing that probably changed uh, the course of my thinking as far as uh, hunting older age bucks. And it wasn't any particular thing that happened. It's more of a, an idea. Uh, but I was a lot younger, and, you know, you would see people kill these big bucks, and I wanted to kill one too. And But one thing that I noticed is the real giants that were killed – and whenever I say real giants, I'm talking about the the best bucks from my area. Mm-hmm. A lot of times we're killed by people that knew nothing about deer hunting. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were hunting places that you would never hunt those deer. And um, so that is one thing that got me to thinking about hunting areas with, uh, with the least deer sign and... Um, and and I believe that's that's one thing that uh, changed uh, my hunting is just realizing that you know hey I'm I'm hunting places that are just too deery if that makes sense I need to hunt the places that are bucky not deery <laughs> yeah yeah and that is a big distinct big distinguishing thing right there yes but uh, but yeah like you said those big old guys they don't want to be surrounded by a bunch of kids and. And no. moms, right? That's the old grumpy man. This is Clint Eastwood on the front porch saying, there get out of here. That's I want to be by myself. That's a perfect analogy. Clint Eastwood. I like that. <laughs> yep. That's, that's what we're looking for. Here. So, uh, so with that image in our minds, then I guess that's a good way to wrap this up. Um, yeah. Nathan, for folks that want to follow along with your season or, or see anything else from you, is there anywhere you would direct people to go or to connect with you in any kind of way? Yeah, you know, I, I'm just on uh, Instagram. Uh, I'm a mountain hunter on there. You can search my name, Nathan Killen, or the Stick Boys. Uh, you know, I'm really good friends with those guys. I've got uh, a few um, scouting videos uh, on their YouTube channel and uh, a couple of deer hunts. Um, I'm no uh, videographer or anything like that, but, you know, um, you can. They, they've got some really good stuff on uh, there, too, that they've done, you know, so... But uh, yeah, that's the, that's the two places. I'm I'm not real social, but uh, um, I do that a little bit. So that's great. I, I've checked out some of those videos and uh, and I enjoyed them. There's a nice yeah. little bit of a combination of getting to see what you're doing in the field, but then also you explaining what happened or why you did things, or even a couple of them. There's some some map breakdowns which were really helpful to see. Yeah. So uh, it's good stuff, Nathan. Man, I really yeah. appreciate you taking this time to talk through all this and uh, kind of let me 
take you down the wormhole and into the minds of these big old deer. Yeah. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I enjoy anytime anybody wants to sit and listen to me rattle on about them. So, <laughs> <laughs> me too. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's plan doing it again someday down the road, Nathan, and hopefully we'll hear a new story or two about uh, that deer you get a crack at. Hopefully, you're in a couple months or weeks. Yep. Yep. All right. Good luck this year, Nathan. All right, you too, buddy. Thank you. All right, and that is a wrap. Thank you all for tuning in. Hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. We are getting into the season. It is real, my friends. I'm kicking off my first hunt this week. So uh, I will hopefully have a story for you very soon about some exciting hunts. And if nothing else, some lessons learned, which is always an important takeaway from each hunt that we can bring home with us no matter what happens at the end of the day. So best of luck out there as you get after it. I hope you have a lot of fun. Enjoy the process. The results will follow. Until next week, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.